I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us again get to the truth of the matter about Russia's invasion into Ukraine, we have with us Dr. Seth Jones, who runs our international security program. He is a senior vice president at CSIS, and he's also the Harold Brown chair here at CSIS. Seth, things are happening minute to minute here, but where are we, the current campaign, the current military campaign the Russians are waging, can you describe that and and what their strategy is? Yeah, Andrew, the Russians are focused on taking a small number of cities right now. Probably the most important strategically is Kyiv. It's the capital. The focus here, the political objective is, I think, based on that, an overthrow of the Ukrainian government. They're also targeting cities like uh, Kharkiv. And the Russian approach to this, this is not a U.S. or Western type of a population-centric hearts and minds military strategy. This is a punishment one, a scorched earth strategy. The way the Russians generally deal with an operation like this, and they've done it in Syria around cities like Aleppo, they've done it in Chechnya, including around cities like Grozny, is they're going to want maneuver units to come into the cities, ground units to come into the cities, tanks, armor and personnel carriers, dismounted infantry. And in order to do that as, as safely as possible for those tanks and armored personnel carriers and infantry, they conduct a really serious bombing campaign. They've got thermobaric bombs, uh, cluster munitions, targeting anything that's politically, militarily, intelligence uh, has uh, significance, buildings, units, uh, tanks, air defense systems. They may also target, and they've, they've done this in the Syrian war and the Chechen wars, that they'll tar- target hospitals if they're treating wounded Ukrainian soldiers. So these can include what you'd call indiscriminate targets as well, and that is civilian targets. So this goes beyond just a military campaign. The effort is to undermine the morale of the Ukrainian population based on a heavy, sustained Russian bombardment. The end result, sadly, will be twofold or, or maybe twofold. One is, is it will lay waste to chunks of Ukrainian cities like Kyiv and Kharkiv. Really flatten them. Flatten them. I mean, the before and after pictures of Aleppo, Syria and Grozny are horrifying. The second is that it is possible that Russian forces will then be able to take the cities. Holding them, as we'll talk about, is a different matter, but seizing them at least temporarily. Actually, there's a third issue, which is that there will, and I think there already have been, almost certainly, human rights abuses that will raise questions about you know, broader long-term punishment, including through some kind of war crimes tribunal. Right. And we have, you know, the UN reported today that, you know, 660 some thousand refugees, women, children have left Ukraine. Of course, uh, Ukraine has mandated that men between, I think, ages 18 and 60 stay back and fight. So, Seth, when they flatten these cities, Kharkiv and Kiev, what does that do to the Ukrainian people? Does that strengthen their resolve or does that weaken it? Andrew, this is this is a huge strategic miscalculation for Putin and anybody advising him, which is it is having the exact opposite impact that I think he's intended. It is strengthening the resolve of Ukrainians 
They hate the Russians. If they hated them before, they definitely hate them now. If they didn't before, they definitely hate them now. They're fighting. We've seen lots of evidence of people with a IT background, a technology background, cooks and truck drivers that have dropped everything, never fired a weapon before, and are now de defending their homeland. Members of the Ukrainian parliament. Poroshenko is out there in fatigues with his own AK-47 rifle. Absolutely. Also, Ukrainian diaspora. They've been coming from the US. I talked to someone, Andrew, from Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, a college student who left recently from college and went back to fight on the front lines against the Russians. We've seen uh, Ukrainian truck drivers in Europe, including in Poland, come back uh, to Ukraine to pick up weapons and fight. And we've actually seen non-Ukrainians come back to fight with the Ukrainian government against the Russians. So the other issue, and again, strategic miscalculation, is it has really unified huge chunks of the world against the Russians. And uh, so we've seen everything from, you know, a big escalation in sanctions against the Russian government to FIFA tossing out the Russians from the Soccer, 2020 World Cup. World Cup to just bans uh, politically, B economically. BP taking 20% of its business out or they had 20% of their business in Russia. Now it's gone. Russia is becoming the new North Korea now in some circles, it is you don't want to touch Russia in any way, shape or form. Companies are pulling out some of their staff and investments from Russia. It's a really bad sign. I, I, I cannot imagine this is what Putin had in mind when he uh, sent forces into Ukraine. Let's talk about Putin's miscalculation a bit more. Our, our colleague Elliot Cohen writes today in The Atlantic that he believes along with others, uh, Bob Gates said over the weekend, Madeleine Albright last week, that Putin has really miscalculated here. And Dr. Cohen even goes further and says he thinks this version of Vladimir Putin is really diminished. He's diminished because he's been isolated in his DACA. He seems paranoid. He seems distant from any advice that would, would help him. What do you make of this miscalculation? What does it ultimately do to this conflict? Well, Andrew does two things. One of them is it sets Russia back as a country, economically, politically. I mean, I think even militarily, it sets the country back. Its economy is being punished right now. Uh, and it, the longer those sanctions are put in place and the more investments are pulled out of Russia, the more pain that the country is, is going to suffer politically isolated, at least from the West. So that's one major impact. A second is, I think, in, in general, there is a potential for instability in Russia. The more Russian soldiers are killed in the country, this was a problem at the end of the day for Gorbachev and Soviet leaders in the 1980s, that it was the mothers of dead Russian soldiers that, that complained to the Politburo that their strategy in Afghanistan was, was unhelpful and too costly. If this war continues in the direction that it has for the Russians being isolated politically, militarily, and bleeding in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians look like they're going to fight, this does raise this prospect of what's Putin's future? Yeah, and what's his off-ramp? Does he have an off-ramp here, even if he wants to get out of this situation? I, he probably has an off-ramp. It's going to be a little humiliating. I mean, he wouldn't necessarily characterize it that way. But if Putin at the end of the day 
is able to lay waste to several Ukrainian cities and keep the slice of uh, Ukraine that he has. He may expand it. He may actually connect Crimea to the areas around the Donbass. So if he can do that, then he has consolidated some territory in Ukraine and annexed it into Russia. And then he has also sent a message probably to the Georgians and several others that you do not want to even consider closer Western ties. The problem, though, Andrew, is that the message that Sweden is getting, Finland, even Ukraine recently is Ukraine is is ramped up its desire to get in the European Union. Yeah, they asked today, could they be immediately admitted? And the Finns and the Swedes, I think, are already discussing first privately entering NATO. Now may not be the best time to do that, but I mean, again, very counterproductive for for Putin. I want to talk about what's next for Ukraine's cities that are being bombed. But before we do that, is Russia now overextended militarily also? Andrew, I think the Russian military is overextended. I think the military is in a very precarious position if Ukraine becomes a protracted war, which it looks like is is possible at this point. If, if we look at the number of Russian soldiers in Ukraine right now, and that includes some of the Russian-backed separatists, and then even if you add some Belarusian forces, if they move into Ukraine, and you assume a population in Ukraine of about 44 million, I know we've got some refugees moving out, so the numbers are going to fluctuate, um, but that's a force-to-population ratio of about somewhere between three to four Russian soldiers per 1,000 people. That is a tiny number. I mean, most of the really successful military campaigns, particularly to hold territory, the number of US forces in Germany by 1945, who were also involved in keeping a peace afterwards, were about 90 US soldiers per 1,000 inhabitants. In the Balkans, the numbers are about 20 US and European forces per 1,000 inhabitants. And in other countries, it's been successful in 15, 20, 25, 30 soldiers per 1,000 inhabitants. Those soldiers are really important to keep and hold territory, establish law and order. Three to four Russian soldiers in a hostile country right now with women, with IT professionals. These aren't soldiers picking up weapons to fight them. They're not going to be enough those numbers are not going to be enough to hold anything that the Russians see. So I think the Russian army is very overextended and is in extraordinary danger of being picked apart. You know, not unlike British soldiers were picked apart by Minutemen in the in the US behind rock walls with muskets that they barely had experience fighting. This is this is, I think, the potential future for Russian soldiers in Ukraine, a hostile territory. Seth, do you think that the Russians can win? No. I, I think at this point, if winning for the Russians is either annexing Ukraine or even a big part of it, or installing a pro-Russian puppet regime in Ukraine, I don't think the Russians can win. The, the Ukrainian population is not going to accept a Russian sovereignty over its territory and I just based on the way the Ukrainian population has responded, which is a huge Russian intelligence failure, that they completely miscalculated on how the Ukrainians would respond, that if the Russians were to insert a puppet government in Kiev, 
based on what we're seeing, there's no way that the population is, is going to support it. So if if that is what winning means to the Russian, which I think it it has been, I mean, that's why you send your armored units to Kiev, to overthrow the government, that the Russians are not going to win in Ukraine. Why is this convoy backed up? There's a 40-mile convoy of Russians that, like, you know, is really a sitting duck for anyone who wants to blow them up. What's going on with that? Andrew, I prefer to uh, use the term traffic jam. It's actually an interesting example of really poor Russian logistics and preparation that they have that kind of a traffic jam. The unfortunate aspect about it is that the Ukrainians haven't been able to take advantage of it. They don't have supremacy of the air. Obviously, NATO countries, including the U.S., are not involved in the war. Otherwise, you know, U.S. aircraft would tear apart a traffic jam like like what we're seeing. I will say, though, over the long run, these kinds of long lines of Russian tanks and armored personnel carriers and towed artillery, they will increasingly be sitting ducks. The Russians did not deploy any forces to block Ukraine's western borders with NATO. Those borders are wide open. So refugees are moving out and incoming is the kitchen sink, anti-tank munitions, surface-to-air missiles, ammunition, people coming into fight, non-military equipment, humanitarian assistance, night vision goggles. So with all that stuffing starting to pour into Ukraine to aid the Ukrainian government and resistance efforts, I, I think you can be rest assured that those kinds of lineups, traffic jams in the future are sitting targets for any kind of uh, Ukrainian with a shoulder-launched rocket. Certainly a target-rich environment. Are we, we, the United States, are we getting the Ukrainians' weapons lethal aid quick enough? Andrew, I think the U.S. has responded in many ways quite effectively in, say, sharing intelligence about what the Russians are up to, shared intelligence about the likelihood of the Russians attacking capitals like Kyiv. I think the administration has done a, a good job bringing in allies and partners. I think, though, the Russians are in serious danger of getting bogged down in Ukraine. And I think they've been a little bit reactive right now. Now, you know, there may be other things going on inside the government that we can't see. But I, I think this is an opportunity to uh, help Ukraine economically, politically, and militarily start to pick apart a Russian army that is overextended and in serious danger the longer it sits in hostile Ukrainian territory. The U.S. should be doing everything it can to aid the Ukrainians against Russian invaders. This is an opportunity that is, it's a once in a generation opportunity. The U.S. got this opportunity in Afghanistan in the 1980s. It took advantage it pounded the Russian army, the Red Army in Afghanistan, and among other things, it contributed to the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union. This has major implications if the Russians lose in Ukraine. So I think the U.S. needs to move quick. It needs to be a little careful too. Putin is a little unpredictable, but I, I think the U.S. needs to move quicker, pushing additional resources, and the Ukrainians are begging for more. And do those resources include us operating clandestine missions on the ground in Ukraine? Are we, do we have the capability of doing that? Should we be doing that? 
Andrew, I do think we have to be careful in getting engaged much in direct action in Ukraine. There's certainly an argument for working very closely with Ukrainian government and resistance on collecting intelligence, on providing them weapons and intelligence that they can use in combat. But I think, you know, getting the U.S. engaged directly in the war, even clandestinely, does run risks that if it is discovered that we're directly participating in the war, that does have the potential to escalate the crisis. And, you know, even during the 1980s in Afghanistan, CIA was generally very careful about focusing most of their assistance from Pakistan. So you could do a lot of this from Poland or other countries in NATO's eastern flank and help get into Ukraine rather than send U.S. clandestine units into Ukraine itself. Seth, I want to ask you finally, you know, what do you think is next for these major Ukrainian cities, Kyiv and, and Kharkiv, who are just being, you know, obliterated with shelling and bombing from uh, the Russians? What do you think is next for these cities? Andrew, I think what is next for these cities, unfortunately, is unless there's heroic initial resistance from conventional Ukrainian units, is that it is possible in one or several of these cities, the Russians will take the cities with ground maneuver units. Again, as we've already talked about, the challenge for the Russians is going to be holding cities. So, I mean, this is a little bit of the problem that the US found itself in in Iraq and Afghanistan. It could it overthrew the both the Iraqi, the Saddam Hussein, and then the Taliban governments, and then found itself in the middle of insurgencies. Now, in this case, I think the situation is notably worse for the Russians in Ukraine right now, a much more hostile population. At the very least, there was some hatred of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Zelensky is a global hero right now. He's an icon. Now, it is possible, and he said this publicly, that he may, he may die. Uh, he becomes a martyr. But I think it's highly likely that the next stage is a, an evolution into a, a guerrilla or an insurgency campaign by the Ukrainian population. Mao Zedong, the former Chinese leader and guerrilla leader, called it a people's war as being the most effective campaign against an invading ar army. It is a quintessential people's war against the Russians in Ukraine right now. Well, war then as now is always a test of will, and it certainly seems like the Ukrainian people have the will to hold on to their nation. I think they do, Andrew. You know, it is interesting, Brigadier Mohammed Youssef, who headed the Afghan war for Pakistan's ISI, the Inter Services Intelligence Directorate, said after that Afghan campaign, and I'm quoting, death by a thousand cuts, this is the time-honored tactic of the guerrilla army against a large conventional force. In Afghanistan, it was the only way to bring the Soviet bear to its knees. This sounds awfully familiar to the possible direction the Russians may find themselves in in Ukraine. Seth, thank you for this discussion. Thank you for helping us you know, begin to get to the truth of the matter about this conflict. And I know we'll be talking more in days to come. Thanks, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 